0: Hey, I want to welcome you to Grace. We are really glad that you're here this morning. And uh, I may cough a little bit, but I want you to know I've got my water here, because last time people said, does he need water? Right here. Also, uh, I was driving with Cindy down to Tulsa, and we were listening to some worship music, and um, I I was singing along. I said, Cindy, this is an awesome worship CD. Who is this? She said, well, this is the Grace We Sing Spotify account. Oh, okay, that's why I know all these songs. If you are not on our Spotify account, this would be a great way for you to kind of take up the next notch worship-wise, because the more you hear these songs, the more you can participate fully in worship here at Grace. We sang a new song this morning. Well, that's that's on the Spotify account. And so if you listen regularly, it it can really enhance your sense of worship. All right, well, let's um, pray, and then we'll dig into the Word. Father, thank you so much for your presence among us this morning. We love being in your presence. We love getting to connect with the reality of all that you are. And so, Father, we pray that you would guide us this morning as we dig into your Word. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I want, to, uh, I want to begin with uh, a story that is a fascinating story. I want to take you back to the city of Rickenbach, East Germany, in the years just after World War II. On a cloudy November day, a little boy was born to parents who were committed atheists. This little boy's name was Albrecht Dietrich, and the atheism of their household meant that Albrecht never received the motherly or fatherly love that you would anticipate receiving. He says, I never ever remember receiving a hug from my mom. And while his parents were teachers, they were extremely poor, as was most everybody in post-war uh, East Germany. As Albrecht progressed in school, um, he, uh, it was obvious that he was not just smart, but like incredibly smart and street smart and academically smart, and academically smart So smart that at the age of 18, after earning a PhD in chemistry, he was proposed to move on to receive uh, a a PhD uh, at the University of Jena. But the year he turned 20, he was approached by the East German secret police, the dreaded secret police with a tantalizing offer. And the offer was, (coughs) would you be willing to be a KGB spy headquartered in Russia? and you've got 24 hours to decide. He snapped up the opportunity. And soon, he became a KGB Russia operating as Jack Barsky. He uh, went to Moscow, learned new languages, learned Morse code, learned cryptography. But what he was really good at, what he was brilliant at was English, and he could speak English with not a trace, of a German or a Russian accent. And so he was sent to the United States uh, to be a deep undercover spy. And his, his charge was, we want you to get a social security number, we want you to get a driver's license, and we want you to get the holy grail of all spycraft. That is a US passport. And so to do that, he had to go back to school, get a degree in computer science, which he did with, with ease and he was hired by MetLife. And in the 1980s, Jack Barsky, with perfect, flawless English, worked for MetLife as a computer programmer, and he would send back computer code back to Russia because computer programmers wanted to know all about that that code. But here's the deal. 10 years into his time in America, he realized America's not such a bad place. He realized that uh, Americans weren't these horrible people (coughs) and he also realized that capitalism, rather than being a bad thing, promoted good competition and promoted a sense of prosperity, freedom, and products that were a whole lot better than the products he was used to back in uh, East Germany and and in Russia. So gradually, his love for the communist dream was replaced by a love for the American dream, which was freedom. Freedom to do what you want to do. So uh, when his Russian handlers caught wind of his (coughs) dissatisfaction, they said, you're coming home. Now. Well, by this time, he had an 18-month-old daughter. And for the first time in his life, he understood something about unconditional love. He said, I'm not coming home. He said, I have AIDS. He didn't, but he said, I have AIDS. Russians back in the 80s were terribly afraid of AIDS. I have AIDS. I don't want to affect anybody in Russia with AIDS, so I'm not coming home. So now, <clears throat> now he's a, like a deep undercover spy with no nation. He's not a citizen of the US. He certainly is being rejected now by the Russians and by the Germans. What do you do? Well, the FBI figured out who he was in 1994 and they arrested him in 1997. But along the way, something amazing happened to Jack Barsky. He was working for another insurance company and he interviewed an assistant named Shauna, and Shauna was from Jamaica and Shauna said, If I'm hired here, I just want you to know I am a follower of Jesus, and I intend to live out my Christian faith in this office. Is that okay with you? And Jack Barsky said, Yeah, that's fine with me. Over the next year, she lived out her life in such a, an incredibly winsome way that Jack was attracted toward the Christian faith. He received a copy of C.S. Lewis's Mere Christianity. <laughs> And you know what happened? He became a Christian. Through the most unlikely person, a Jamaican-born immigrant who came to New York leads an ex-KGB spy to Christ. When he shared his testimony to church for the first time, people were just astonished, saying, that can't be the case. Well, it was the case. There's Shauna. She's the bringer of the good news. And he went on to write a book called Deep Undercover. It is a fabulous book. I recommend it highly. Now, (coughs) Jack goes all over the place as an ex-KGB spy, giving lectures. There's a spy museum in in Washington, D.C. I don't know if you knew about that. There's an amazing place, a spy museum. He gives lectures at the spy museum, and he actively shares his faith in Jesus Christ. Now, as I read the book, I reflected on how easy it is for Christians in America to forget the power of the good news. Because we think, well, that guy, atheist, not interested. That guy, agnostic, not interested. That person, wealthy, self satisfied, not interested. And so we assume, well, I'm not going to share the. F- they're, they're probably not interested in what I have to say. And I think the evil one loves to make us afraid of sharing the message. <coughs> And yet, as I read this book, it reminded me in a new way that there are people out there, people that you know, people that are very far from Christ, in whose life God is working powerfully, in whose life God is wanting to make supernatural changes. And if we would just get the good news out, those are the people who will respond. So what I want to do this morning is I want to talk to you about something that I think should be a worthy goal in the year 2020, and that is... That we would be more proactive at sharing our faith. And I want to show you this from um, Luke chapter 19, verses 1 through 27. As we often do, we'll look at the story, tease out the big idea, and look at some applications. The story is a fascinating story. The story is about Zacchaeus. And after leading Zacchaeus to himself, Jesus tells a parable to illustrate what he's just done. So here's the story uh, of how Zacchaeus comes to Christ. In Luke 19, the story opens, and Jesus has been going down to Jerusalem. He's doing miracles. He's teaching. Uh, He's doing these amazing things that are attracting a big crowd, and they're almost done with their journey. They have to go the last 17 miles, which is the infamous trail of blood the Jericho Road so dangerous was this place that nobody wanted to do this alone because you were bound to be like beaten up or maybe murdered and so the Jericho Road was a tough place to be so before they get to the Jericho Road they've got to pass through the city of Jericho and I want you to imagine that there's like this parade route and people in Jericho are lining the parade route and Jesus and his, his disciples and the people who are following him are going down the center street of the parade route and it's a big deal and there's a guy who wants to see Jesus but he's really short, his name is Zacchaeus and you know, you know about this guy. Zacchaeus is short. Now, let's just do a thought experiment here. The guy in the shroud of Turin who many people think is Jesus is five feet seven inches tall. So that was a bit tall in the ancient world because a lot of people were in Israel were like five 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 six. Jesus is five seven. If, if, if that's really him in the shirt of Turin, <coughs> if Zacchaeus is short, that means Zacchaeus is four eleven or five feet. Now, if you're five feet and Jesus is five seven, that's like me standing next to Russell Westbrook. Okay, I mean, I mean there's, a, there's a sizable difference. Zacchaeus is running along the parade route behind the people. He climbs up a sycamore tree. Why a sycamore tree? Well, if you look on the screens, you can see that a sycamore tree has plenty of places for you to hide. And here's Zacchaeus climbing up this sycamore tree, getting up in the tree, wanting to, wanting to peer down <coughs> and see Jesus. He is the most hated and one of the most powerful people in the city, acting like a little kid. I got to get up in the tree and see Jesus. So Jesus is walking along the parade route. Jesus stops underneath the sycamore tree. Zacchaeus. So Zacchaeus now is busted. Here's this big, important person acting like a little kid up in a tree hiding behind the leaves. And he just got, he just got busted. And <clears throat> you can't imagine how, how embarrassing this was. And Jesus says... Zacchaeus, come on down. I'm, I'm coming to your house. And all the religious leaders were just like, oh, I'm, I'm, they were so angry. They were livid over what just happened. It's not like Jesus is going to the local Starbucks you know, or, the, or Outpost Coffee Shop here in town. <clears throat> He's going to Zacchaeus' house. He's going to eat on cups that Zacchaeus drank out of. He's going to eat off of plates that Zacchaeus ate off of. He is going to become defiled by this hated tax collector and sinner. That's what the Pharisees thought. But why would Jesus reach down into what they thought was the dark underbelly of society? Why would he do that? What's his purpose in doing that? Why does he have to go after somebody who is on the outs, societally speaking? Well, because his mission is to seek and to save the lost. (coughs) And Jesus gives that mission After telling Zacchaeus he's going to his house, and I think on the way to the house, Jesus says, for the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. I love the way Jesus expresses this because Jesus loves people who are broken. He loves people who are depressed and anxious and let down by life. He loves people who have been passed over by life. He loves people who are crushed He loves people who've endured tragedy, and sadness, and failure. Those are the people he reaches out to. And here's this short tax collector hated by literally everybody in the city, and that's the guy Jesus goes after, why? Because he loves to seek and to save that which is lost. So pause for a second to say that is your mission as well. Jesus' mission is your mission. The baton that Jesus had of seeking and saving the lost has been slapped down into the palm of your hand. And from the moment you come to Christ, to heaven, what he wants you to do is reach out to people who are lost and let down and broken and hurting and in pain. And he wants you to to seek them so that they might be one to him and find healing and hope even in the midst of their, of their sorrow. Why, why is that so hard for us to do? Why? I mean, you know, Jesus' last words to his disciples, you know, said that would have power to do this, because the Holy Spirit would be upon us, and we'll be his witnesses in places that are geographically near and geographically distant. We'll be his witnesses there. Why is this so hard? We fear rejection, maybe, or we feel failure. But most of all, most of, most of all we, we just fear looking foolish and stupid and dumb. <laughs> and so we're in a world of pain, and we just, ah, oh, I'm not gonna share my faith. Ah, oh, they're not gonna understand. They, they, they're, not, they're not gonna be interested. And Jesus knows we feel this way, so Jesus gives us a parable to tell us how we should think during this time. In the parable, it's called the parable of the minas, and here's how the story begins. Because there are people, you know, who are thinking about, I'm, I'm not going to go seek and save the lost. That, that guy, that's his mission. I'm, I'm not, I'm not going to go do that. So to motivate us, he gives us the parable. So here, here's, the, here's the parable. There was this great nobleman who had the opportunity to become a great king. So the nobleman goes off to a distant country to receive a kingdom and then return to rule it. Meanwhile, back in his home country, the people don't want him to be the king, so they send a delegation after the guy who wants to be king, and they say to the authorities, we do not want to have this man rule over us. Now, the moment Jesus said this, everybody pressed forward to listen to his words because he's talking about a current event. After Herod the Great died, his son Archelaus was to receive the kingdom. Herod Archelaus was crazy. He was was a nutcase. On a whim, he killed 3,000 people just because, because. So Herod the Great dies. He goes to Rome, to Caesar, to try to receive the kingdom of Judea. Meanwhile, people from Israel, they go to Rome. They say, "We, we we do not want this man to rule over us. Don't let him do this. And so this was in this is like a big current events kind of a thing, and and every person who heard Jesus say this, they're listening. <coughs> and now Jesus applies this to himself. In the story, Jesus is the nobleman. He ri- he dies on the cross, he rises from the dead, he ascends to heaven, according to Daniel 7, 13 and 14, he receives the kingdom. According to Philippians chapter two, he received the name that is above every other name. And just like there was a delegation following Archelaus to Rome saying, we do not want to have this man rule over us. There are many people here on this earth who say, we do not believe in Jesus. We do not want this savior to rule over us. You know who those people are. I mean, you, you know that atheists, have said this for years. They say there's no God, there's no meaning, no value, no purpose. They do not want Jesus to rule over them. The atheist worldview and every other materialist worldviews like communism, fascism, progressivism as a a brand of ism, I, I, I don't want Jesus to rule over me. He has no right to. We see this with, uh, with Islam. Um, Muslims don't want Jesus to rule over them. They, they believe that there was a person named Jesus. They believe, uh, ironically, that he was a prophet, that he was a good person, that he did miracles. Um, but they don't believe that he died on the cross for sin. They don't believe that he rose from the dead. They will not have Jesus rule over them. And you see this um, with many casual non-believers. They would say, you know, Christianity is cool and all, but, you know, um, I'm not going to live my life based upon the principles of Christ. We will not have this man rule over us. And so in this parable, Jesus is assuming that he is going to divide the world, sharply divide the world. Some will love him, others will hate him. Some will worship him, others will reject him. Very, very few people will be neutral. And if they are neutral, they're not neutral for long. So if that's the case, what should we as followers of Jesus be doing during his two comings, his first coming and his second coming? What should we be doing? If Jesus is sharply dividing the world, what should we be doing During these first two comings, what should our our modus operandi be? What should the habit of our life be? Well, the plot line continues in the parable in verse 13. (coughs) Because the nobleman calls 10 of his servants together, and he gives to each one of them a mina. In some of the versions, it means it, it says a pound. A mina or a pound was a unit of measure equaling about $12,000 in today's economy. It's, it's a good amount of money. It's not, you know, it's not millions, uh, but it's a substantial amount of money. And he says, I want you to do business with that mina until I return. So now we're faced with a problem because a similar parable is in Matthew chapter 25, parable of the talents. So he ask the question, okay, is the mina and the talent the exact same thing? In Matthew 25, we got the parable of the talents. Luke 19, the parable of the minas. So I'm going to say that they're completely different. In Matthew 25, three slaves receive three different amounts of money. In Luke 19, it's the same amount of money. In Matthew 25, the slaves say, I made your money grow. In Luke 19, the slaves say, your money grew all by itself. In Matthew 25, the two slaves are equally commended. In Luke 19, only one guy is commended, the guy with a big return. So the differences, I think, reveal something, and what they reveal is this. The thing to be managed is different. In Matthew 25, it's our talents. In Luke 19, it's different, and I believe, based upon the context, like Zacchaeus coming to Christ, the mina represents the gospel the gospel message. That's the one thing that all of us have as followers of Jesus that is completely equal. I have the gospel message. You have the gospel message. Martin Luther had the gospel message. Billy Graham had the gospel message. My little granddaughter has the gospel message. All of us, no matter our station in life or geographically where we live, we have the same thing, the gospel message, and we are challenged to do business with that message until Jesus returns. So that raises a question. The question is, all right, what's the gospel that we're supposed to do business with? Well, let me give you the big picture and then be very specific. The big picture is this. The good news is that Jesus is the king and we can live under his rule. Because when Jesus began talking about this in the gospels, he talked about the good news of the kingdom. And the idea was that I'm the king, the king is here, and you can live under my rule. But how do we do that? To do that, we have to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 1 through 5, and Paul gives us a very tight definition of the gospel in 1 Corinthians 15, and I'm going to paraphrase it, and the paraphrase is this. The good news is that Jesus, the infinite Son of God, died on the cross for our sins. He rose from the dead so that he could grant eternal forgiveness and eternal life to all who believe. And that message applies to all people of all cultures for all times. So when Jack Barsky is seeing Shauna and he's seeing the way she lives her life, when Jack Barsky is challenged by Shauna to read certain passages of scriptures, Shauna is leading him in this direction to believe that Jesus is the son of God who died on the cross for his sins. When Jack Barsky opens up Mere Christianity, he sees that message. When Jack Barsky later opens up a book by Ravi Zacharias, he reads that same message. Jesus died on the cross for my sins. He rose from the dead to grant eternal forgiveness and eternal life to all who believe. And that that offer is available to anybody, even a KGB spy who has no country. It's available to anybody. Anyone can come to Christ. One of the things we see uh, is from this parable (coughs) is that the gospel has such power inherent within itself that it's like a seed. You know, later in the story, one of the servants will say, Master, (coughs) your mina has made 10 minas. Well, that's like what a seed does. You know, I received a a gift from my son-in-law of some seeds. I keep telling people, one of these days, I want to plant a garden in my backyard. I keep procrastinating and procrastinating and procrastinating one of these days. So my son-in-law gave me some seeds. So so let's say that I I get good at planting a garden, you know, and, and, and let's say a year from now, I say, hey, your seed has led to 100 plants. How could that be? Because seeds have self-propagating character qualities. And just like just like a seed has that character quality, so also the gospel. So also the gospel. That's why Jesus commanded us to share it widely. Go therefore, make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all I have commanded you. These are last words on the lips of Jesus, that this is something that we are to share. Share broadly, share share widely, and so the, Jesus <coughs> says in the parable to the to the servants, do business with this pound with this mine until I come back. Do business. I love the, I love the way this is worded in the original language. It's the Greek word pragmatouomai, oh which means pragmatic. Like do business with this. Be pragmatic. Make this. Mina, grow. Think strategically about it. Think tangibly about it. And the tense of doing business means we do it continually. We're constantly thinking about how we might advance the cause of Christ. Now, this requires new strategies in different generations. There was a great awakening in the year 1730, 40, 50 in America, And their strategy was large, open-air preaching. That was the strategy then. Doing business with the gospel meant large, open-air preaching. There was a layman's prayer revival in 1858, 1859, and it happened through small groups. That's a different strategy. Uh, My son is working on a strategy using Facebook advertising to do Share, share the faith in the Middle East. That's a different strategy. So doing business means you you do business according to the needs of the of the culture. Now, there will be an accounting, because in Luke 19.15, uh, when the nobleman returned, he called his slaves to them and wanted them to give an accounting for what they had done with, with the pound. When does our accounting take place? It take, pl- takes place at... This event called the judgment seat of Christ. At the judgment seat of Christ, you will be evaluated by the risen Christ. And he will look at all the things you have done from salvation to heaven. He'll look at the way you've managed your money. He'll look at the way that you have loved your wife, or your husband, or your kids. He'll look at the way you've you've walked in the power of the Spirit. And if there is a reward to be given, he will give a reward. One of the criteria for those rewards are going to be, what did you do with the gospel that I gave to you? What did you do with that? Like beginning with your family. Did you you lead your kids toward Christ? Did you lead your grandkids toward Christ? Did you lead lead your nieces and and nephews toward Christ? And so the nobleman calls the slaves in to give an, an accounting. And the first appears and with great enthusiasm he says master your mina has made 10 minas more like that's that's amazing he gets a 1000% return on his money that speaks volumes about the gospel by the way because it says the gospel has explosive force <coughs> jesus reveals the reward and he says well done good and faithful slave you will be in authority over 10 cities like what 10 cities what does it mean to be an authority over 10 cities? Well, what's interesting is that one of the rewards for serving well during this life is that we will have responsibilities in our partnership with Jesus in heaven. So for example, 2 Timothy 2, 11 and 12, if we died with him, we will live with him. If we endure with him, we will reign with him. That's a promise that if you, live well in this life, you will have a position of leadership authority in his kingdom. Revelation three twenty one: to him who overcomes, I will grant to sit with me on my throne as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. Another example, Revelation 20, verse six, they will be priests of God and of Christ and they will reign with Christ for a thousand years. The idea being that if we serve well in this life, we will have partnership a leadership partnership with Jesus in the next life. Now, you you may say, well, that that doesn't do anything for me. I don't really care about about leadership. But let me tell you something. This leadership is not going to be like lording it over kind of leadership. It's, It's a leadership of love. It's a leadership of working in conjunction with the risen Christ. And How cool would that be to be a leader under the greatest leader who had ever lived? Not everybody's going to receive the same kind of reward though because the third slave comes in and the third slave took his, his, his mina, wrapped it up, went to the backyard by the light of the moon, dug this hole, buried it down there, tamped it over. And what, what happened to the mina? Well, it, it couldn't do anything because the explosive force is only explosive if it's done business with. And so nothing happened. And it's possible for us to lose reward if any man's, this is 1 Corinthians 3, if any man's work which he has built upon it remains, he will receive a reward. If any man's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, yet as through fire. The idea is that if I don't take this gospel, which is so precious to the Father, and invest it in the world, beginning with my family, then it's possible for me to suffer loss at the judgment seat of Christ. And so the king says, um, take the mina away from him and give it to the one who's got 10 minas. So that's the story and the parable. What's the core idea? The core idea is about the blessings of seeking the lost. And here, here it is in a nutshell. Seeking the lost not only transforms the eternal future of a friend, but it also increases your eternal joy. It's obvious why it increases the, it transforms the eternal future of a friend. <clears throat> Jack Barsky's eternal future was opened up by his employee, Shauna. It was opened up because she was willing to live out the life of Christ before her boss and then come to Christ. His eternal future was, was changed. But it also increased her eternal joy because we know from also from Luke that it's possible that when we come into heaven we will see the people whom we have led to Christ so um, think about somebody who is just completely opposed to the faith you share the gospel with them for the first time and their attitude is how dare you how dare you do this to me what's wrong with you never happened to you um, I know people who've been deeply offended because a family member tried to share the gospel with them. It's painful in the present, but there's joy in the future. So to get over your fear, in some ways you've got to think about their eternal future and your eternal joy. When I thought about this, I thought about something that happened recently with, um, with my, one of my... One of my daughters is very expressive in her love. I'm pretty expressive in my love, though, for... For them as well, but one of my daughters called me called me a while back, and and um, and she said something very very honoring to me. And uh, to put this in context, um, you know what the teenage years are like. You know, it's it's like as a mom or dad, you can do no wrong up until age ten, and then like age eleven, it gets a little iffy, and then like age thirteen, it's like you're a, you're an idiot. You know nothing. I don't care if you bore me and are, and are raising me you know you nothing that's that's the way a lot of kids are certainly the way our kids kids were um, <coughs> but then you know our kids get into the 20s and all of a sudden huh mom and dad are they might have something going on up here <laughs> <coughs> um so last last month one of our girls said um she said dad you know when i was born in to your family, I, like I hit the lottery of life, I hit the jackpot of life. Thank you. Okay, so I'm like massively honored, you know, by her saying that. But it, you know, I'm instantly thinking back to this time, this time, this time, this time, this time, <laughs> where there was no possible way that would ever emerge from her lips, right? So, what am I doing with my with my My kids, you know, during those growing up years, I'm leading them as best I can in light of their future joy. So what are you doing when you're sharing the gospel with somebody who is opposed to what you're saying? You're overcoming your reticence by thinking about their eternal joy along with your eternal joy as well. And so with that in mind, let's take a look at some takeaways, three things you can do on a regular basis to seek the lost. Number one, invest in relationships with those who are far from Christ. Invest in relationships with those who are far from Christ. This was Jesus' pattern. He was always investing in relationships with people from every strata of society. (coughs) He connected with fishermen by the Sea of Galilee, with Jewish tax collectors, with people who are mentally ill, with people who are wealthy, with religious leaders who thought they knew it all, with people who were so bent over with grief and pain, they had no hope. He invested in relationships. And if Jesus did this, how much more should we? And so for the past 2,000 years, this principle of investing in relationships with people far from Christ has been a really important component of helping others come to faith in Christ. When Shauna invested in her relationship with Jack Barsky, what that meant was, I am going to live my faith in Christ winsomely and nobly before my non-Christian boss. And when I have an opportunity, I'm going to slip a C.S. Lewis book or Ravi Zacharias book. She was very strategic in how she made the use of books to help him learn more. So the first Takeaway is invest in relationships with people who are far from Christ. That may seem overwhelming, but start with one person. And I'm sure all of you can think about one person that you know who's far from Christ. You know, I, I, could, I could invest in a relationship with that person. I could pray for them. I could ask leading questions. I, might, I could give a book. A second application <coughs> is to invite a non-Christian friend to a place where they can experience Christ's love. You know, one place you could take them to is to a gathering where believers are going to be present, but it's not necessarily a Christian event. And I, the reason why I put a, the, a picture up here of a baseball game is that I've known of fathers and sons who will go to baseball games as believers, but they will invite their non-Christian friends, and they'll, they'll connect on that, on that basis. Ironically, one of the places where you can do that is church, because uh, people are very open to invitations these days to a church. We have our worship night called Presence coming up on the twenty-sixth. What is that? Two weeks, two weeks away. Um, and so, our Presence worship night is a place where you can invite somebody to come and encounter the love of God, but invite people to places where they will encounter relationships that are christian relationships Celebrate recovery is a place like that um so many of the things tim you're doing at nehemiah house are like that well done um and then the third application is this equip people with the tools and resources to follow jesus once a person comes to christ they need to be equipped and it's not rocket science. There are zillions of books out there that help people come to understand the foundational basics of the faith. So this was the pattern of 2 Timothy 2. two. You know, the things you've heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, these entrust to others. So equipping is, is a key part of, of seeking the lost. Can you equip a person before they actually cross the line of faith? Yes, you can. I've talked to people who were very conversant in C.S. Lewis's work and they were learning, 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 learning and then one day they said, you know, I don't know that I've crossed the light of faith yet and I want to. And what they realized was they, they had been equipped to know things about God that were necessary for them to turn and come to faith in Christ. So let me give you the rest of the story. So uh, Shauna leads Jack Barsky to Christ Shauna uh, becomes a star employee, and Jack realizes this woman has changed my life. I'm going to take a really big risk, and I'm going to ask her to marry me. And they got married, and now they have a little girl. Ex KGB spy comes to Christ through a Jamaican-born immigrant who lived out her faith in Christ in a very winsome and compelling way. Okay, that's a pretty flashy story, you know. I don't think any of you in here are KGB spies. If, if, if you are, we got a group at Celebrate Recovery that they could, they could help with that. <laughs> uh, but... Look, there are a lot of people in your sphere of influence who need Jesus. Just start with one and pray. Let's stand for our closing prayer.